Support for Secure Sessions is provided by IPVanish. Choose top-tier privacy, security, and anonymity thanks to our no-log VPN provider of choice. Welcome to the Secure Sessions podcast, sponsored by IPVanish. This is Josh Galliardi, the IPVanish CTO. With me today is Russell Brandom from The Verge, who's done an amazing job of explaining some very complicated technical stories in language that's understandable. Thanks very much for talking to us, Russell. Oh, my pleasure. So we've had a bunch of exciting news rocking around the world recently. We've got the potential Bitcoin founder maybe stepping forward, maybe he's a fraudster. Uh, you've been following this story for a while. Um, what do you think of the strength of proof that's prom- that's been provided, and on uh, and on Craig Wright's uh, sudden stepping back? Yeah, I mean, I think going by the evidence that we have seen and has sort of been publicly produced, I am not very impressed. Right? I think I think we've seen a lot of things that sort of claimed to be evidence and turned out to be, uh, well, I think they, they seem a lot like deliberate fabrications, right? Like we saw this with the backdated PGP key when in the first sort of round of things uh, with the Gizmodo and Wired articles. And now we have this sort of signature that, uh, you know, I think he presented saying, okay, we'll see, this is, this is proof I've signed this thing uh, with the PGP key that only, that, that is, that, that only Satoshi has, and then it turned out to be a copied PGP key that had that had been sort of slightly edited, uh, that had come from something that had been previously signed. Almost as if, uh, you know, I think the old the old trick where you like cut the bottom off of the contract and then paste it onto a different contract and say, "See, he signed this contract." Uh, and so, I think a lot of people, even before he had sort of said. Uh, he had sort of stepped back, we're saying, okay, not only do you need to now prove that you are Satoshi, but you also need to prove why these things you did were not just lies, right? I mean, I think the simplest explanation for that is that he's pretending to be Satoshi and th- this is sort of fabricated evidence, right? Um, the, the thing I, I mentioned, uh, I think maybe on Twitter was you know, if someone hands you a fake $20 bill it, and they say they're a millionaire, well, the $20 bill being fake doesn't prove they're not a millionaire, but it it makes me personally a lot less likely to trust them when they say that they're a millionaire because suddenly they're giving you this fake money. And so maybe he has a great explanation of where, you know, his millions of dollars elsewhere and why this particular $20 bill happened to be fake, but... It, it, and I think at every stage, there's more and more explaining to do if if you believe this guy's genuine. Well, and I think you've got a you've got a bizarre series of incentives uh, for both revealing that you are and not revealing that you are Satoshi in the form of the bitcoins sitting in the wallet that were mined really before anyone else was around. It it tells you just how hungry people are for fame or how much people think they can exploit fame for financial gain afterwards. Because uh, anyone who reveal themselves is immediately going to face questions from a taxing authority. Uh, because even if the taxing authorities treated that 
that generated wad of Bitcoin as mining gains in the old-fashioned mineral sense, uh, I'm sure there are some taxes that are due. So anyone who wants to step forward inherently is volunteering for a huge tax bill from somebody. Yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, I think I don't want to commit the error of being too sort of dogmatic about it in the sense that, uh, you know, I, I mean, we want to believe that there are these things about Satoshi, right? That Satoshi has this private key, that Satoshi has possession of these Bitcoins. And so someone who has those things must be Satoshi. We don't know that for a fact, right? It could be, we know that all of these, you know, these hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoin are out there somewhere, but it's possible that they were lost, right? Like the, the key required to spend them was destroyed at some point or very early on in the process, right? Especially before they were worth a significant amount of money. Right. Um, that's entirely possible. Uh, he could have, his, his initial PGP key could have been compromised by someone. That, and so I don't want to be too dogmatic about, well, okay, here is the math problem that absolutely proves the identity of Satoshi. But I do think those things, you have to have some sort of explanation as to, okay, well, we lost that, and then this other thing happened, but, you know, here, it, it just shouldn't be this hard, I think. Well, stepping back from the sensationalism, uh, you know, we're, of course, huge fans of Bitcoin because we're strong proponents of online anonymity and encryption in general. Um, we've been rooting for its success. I, uh, we were, we were pleased to see that for a long time, the value of Bitcoin was converging almost exactly on the electricity required to produce it with a modern miner, which tells you that there was some fundamental basis of value there. Although we did, of course, see huge swings in speculative spikes as uh, you know, our friends at Goldman Sachs and other places discovered a new market to manipulate. But it, yeah. it looks like they have largely moved on to other places. Uh, we've got some blockchain challenges coming. But um, shifting, from, shifting from talking about Bitcoin to talking about uh, proofs of its value in the real world, you did a really interesting story about uh, theft of a wallet showing that even people who've been pretty careful can be victimized. Yeah, yeah, the, the sort of anatomy of a hack. I mean, and so that was one where, you know, I, I think he had two-factor on, and it makes you realize that two-factor by itself isn't enough, because what they did was, well, he, he was routing his, well, I shouldn't get into all of the details. He had sort of a nested email set up, and then by compromising one of the accounts, they got into his phone, which allowed them to clone the phone, which allowed them to to compromise his two-factor, and then all of this sort of led to emptying out the Bitcoin. I mean, I do think it is, you sort of get these two models of security, and I think Bitcoin is kind of caught in the middle, where the average sort of what we think of as fiat currency, like large banking institutions, and, and I think implicitly this is how a lot of consumer facing companies work is sort of well stay within the lines like these are the best practices and if you don't obey you, you know as long as you obey that will kind of compensate you if you become targeted by these and you know it's i don't know they call it shrinkage right like 
theft from fraud is kind of a line item on the corporate budget, and they take, you know, security measures to minimize that, but then they're also absorbing the cost of it, and it's sort of, you know, it's a very kind of, uh, kind of market-driven approach to security, right, where it's, it's a level of acceptable risk. And then I think you get the, um, you get the, uh, I guess I associate it more with like open source products and like you hear activists talk about security a lot this way where, you know, you're trying to maintain privacy and it's really this all or nothing thing and you need to kind of take all of these steps and you're using Tor and you're using Tails and all these other things. People talk about the security cliff of, you know, you've either got all of it or none of it. It's really hard to get up to having all of it. But this sort of very intense discipline of, you know, making sure all the all the sort of I's are dotted and T's are crossed and all of your software is open source audited and, and all of that. Uh, and I think Bitcoin's kind of caught in the middle because I think the structure of it is such that you either are the only person who has access to your private key or you aren't, right? And and if you are, then you don't need any intermediaries and you can you can make all these transactions and it's sort of a lot more efficient in all of these ways. But if there's any breach, you're sort of on your own. And I think then you see companies like Coinbase that are trying to kind of move it into a more consumery space and kind of running up against the limits of that logic. Well, we at IP Vanish as a security provider, we really try and take a pragmatic approach to security and to encourage people to think about and talk about where they are going to draw the line. And I think the, the key thing we try to get across is that the level of security you take for things, especially in your whether it's in your personal life or in your business life, needs to be to some extent tied to the value of the things you're protecting. So where you're talking about, let's say, as you say, a private key. Uh, for Apple users, that might be the reset code that Apple provides you and warns you about when you turn on two-factor, where they say, don't store this on your phone, print this out, put it someplace physically safe, because anyone with this can reset all your accounts. Yeah. And, and so clearly that sort of uh, personal root certificate uh, is something that deserves better physical protection. And then... I think most people find it uh, not tenable to use truly unique passwords on every account they have, but obviously their bank account is one that deserves a password that's completely unique. Trying to figure out these ways, as you say, to, to get under the, uh, the protection of the vendors and the understanding about um, basically not being stupid, but recognizing that most of us do not carry state secrets around in our bag that require, uh, you know, guys with guns to follow us and and strongly controlled access in and out. Um, now, when yeah. the, when the guys with guns are interested, uh, <laughs> that's where we that's where we the we enter the domain of of law enforcement and of uh, government intrusion or investigation, depending on the purposes, depending on whether you think the uh, whether you think the person is. Uh, the victim or the criminal. Uh, so, so the the other story of yours that that had caught our eye a while ago and was very impressive was the revelation of the Stingray device uh, through the yeah. through the Rig Maiden case. Yeah. 
So what else do you think is out there that is, that is waiting to be exposed uh, from, in, terms of, in terms of, let's say, uh, non-federal government surveillance? Well, I mean, I think, so, um, uh, Christopher Segoyan, who was, who was one of the big, uh, players in sort of, um, in the rig case, sort of on the, on the ACLU side, uh, he would tell you, and I think he, he has said this in print a couple times, that the next frontier is, uh, law enforcement hacking. So that, you know, and, and we've seen this a couple times where, you know, the FBI seizes control of a site and they want to know, uh, you know, a, a tour hidden service and they want to know who's visiting it. And they have sort of, uh, you know, probable cause to believe that anyone who's visiting it is uh, engaged in illegal activity. And so they just start kind of, well, OK, if you if you visit, then you get a little bit of a tracking malware. And then we're going to check what where we're getting pings back from this. And it's going to tell us where you are, and then we're going to send a guy over to your house, right? Um, and so they did this, and I think there's this there's this suspicion that that's one of those things where it's going to trickle down from, you know, people talk about this that that technology like this starts in the intelligence community, you know, it's sort of the NSA and the CIA get get all the cool stuff first, and then or you know the intelligence community, the military, and then it sort of trickles down. To federal law enforcement, and then it trickles down to state law enforcement, and pretty sure, pretty soon, it's just beat cops who are using stingrays to catch, you know, purse snatchers, which is happening in Baltimore, or at least was very recently. Yes, and um, and you'll see the uh, right, and we've seen the state police. I believe it was Missouri uh, for a while had a had a policy of plugging everybody's iPhone uh, who was stopped for speeding in to troll for what else they could find. And we're yeah, deploying yeah. deploying uh, breach devices in their cars. Um, well, I mean, we got so you know. I think I think now they would have a much harder legal time doing that because we got we got a, a sort of number of major rulings saying, okay, actually searching the the phone is a is a you know compelling someone to unlock their phone is sort of a a warrant level request. This is a full search. You can't just do it because you because they were speeding, um, and I think those those rulings are really important. That's a that's a really uh, it's important that we draw the line in the right place legally there. And I think it is one of those situations where the technology had just kind of opened up a new area, and the rules hadn't been set yet, and everyone was just kind of doing whatever they wanted. That's right. And a, a point we've covered here several times is to say that a lot of law enforcement, uh, law enforcement officers love to be able to do uh, sort of passive law enforcement from a comfortable location, right? Uh, you know, whether it's speed enforcement under the shady tree or, <laughs> or uh, you know, folks outside Baltimore uh, from, you know, presumably well-appointed chairs, uh, you know, looking at sneak internet traffic. <laughs> Um, we try not to get too far under the tinfoil hat here, but um, one interesting thing as an aviation buff that came up in the last few months, and I haven't seen anyone investigate this yet, um, there was, uh, there's, a, there's a way to fly airplanes called VFR flight following, where you're talking to air traffic control so that they can keep you out of conflict with other aircraft, but you're not on a flight plan. And many mm -hmm. folks that are doing photography 
or banner towing or parachute jumping. Uh, you know, this is the way that they work with air traffic control. And there's a great website called FlightAware that would track uh, pretty much any flight that was on flight following. After one of the recent Stingray surveillance episodes, somebody noticed that any time you saw a Cessna 182 flying slow circles on FlightAware, it meant that there was likely someone who was the subject of a federal investigation at the center of that circle. Well, did you see, so there was a great BuzzFeed piece where I think they, I think it was, it was one of these websites. I don't think it was FlightAware. I think it was like Flight, flight Plan 24 or something, but they mapped all of the declared flight plans by the FBI or by DHS. So and what, in particular, in San Bernardino, they had, okay, here's this little circle over the guy's house, and here's this little circle over the mosque, and, you know, you can see exactly what they were looking at sort of in the aftermath of the which, attack. Which is not something they're typically terribly fond of. Oh, yeah. So it was therefore interesting when FlightAware dropped visibility to VFR flight following in the last few weeks. Mm. So now... People who are on flight plans, and certainly all the airplanes that are, you know, commercial carriers, they all still show up. But uh, it appears that um, broad access to VFR flight following data is suddenly gone. So the hmm. obvious question is whether someone asked them to turn it off. Yeah. So interesting. I will have to track down the BuzzFeed piece to see. Oh, it's great because you can see all of the, it's just one big map full of kind of dotted lines. <laughs> it's one of those, if you're a data nerd, which I sort of am, uh, it's, it's a great thing to get lost in. Interesting. So we see that over at the federal level, we see increased, uh, increased requests for information. In a couple of the transparency reports that have come out about the FISA court or from various online providers, one of the things we see is that uh, there are very few times that requests are ever refused. Uh, do you yeah. do you see any uh, do you see any interesting trends as far as uh, the positioning of the FIS Accord and whether the populace still cares? We've heard very little that's meaningful from any of the political candidates recently. Yeah, I mean, so that I mean, I don't put it this way. I don't think you're going to see, and I think we saw this with the Apple FBI fight. I don't think you're going to see anything any useful pushback from elected, like, I mean, fr from presidential candidates, I think. I think every once in a while we get a good senator who, who's, like, interested in these things. But I think, and part of it is, I am a big fan of Michael Glennon. Uh, he's a Tufts professor, has this theory about the government that, um, you know, I think in civics class as a kid, you're taught that, okay, we've got the three branches, we've got the president, we've got the Congress, and we've got the courts. And, you know, if the president does something that's out of bounds, the Congress can have a congressional investigation and they can provide oversight. And maybe he does something illegal, then the, the courts can weigh in and, and, you know, each of the branches hold each other in check. And this is sort of the general idea of how the system's supposed to work. And he points out, well, okay, we since World War II, we've built all of these new institutions, you know, the FBI, CIA, NSA are the ones. He, he refers to them as the Trumanite institutions because Harry Truman uh, was sort of instrumental in laying a lot of these out in, in the aftermath of the war, um, as opposed to the sort of Madisonian institutions that are the ones we think of as, sure. as being balanced. Um, and the claim is basically that, you know, th those institutions aren't meaningfully accountable 
to Congress or the president or the courts kind of in any way. And I think if you look at histories of these institutions, you sort of see that happening where, you know, maybe you get mad and there's like a church commission every once in a while. But the idea of continual oversight in the way that you see for the Supreme Court or the president or Congress, there just there isn't it's too secretive for that. And so it's very difficult to hold it in check. And I think most presidents coming in don't really they they, they kind of realize this and they're, they realize, well, the FBI is going to kind of do whatever it wants. And I don't want to be spending political capital having a fight with them that's not going to accomplish anything. So I'm just kind of going to let them do their thing and stay out of it. Well, you see Ron Wyden, a strong proponent yeah, of yeah. both encryption and privacy. Well, uh, he's one of the good ones. Yeah, I yeah. Think he's one of the people who's, who's trying to challenge that. But And his comment at CryptoCon was that he gets 15 minutes with the heads of the intelligence agencies in public a year. And yeah. that uh, he gets a well, few hours in private. Well, sometimes they just lie to him. I mean, we saw that too. Absolutely. Now, on the, I, I can say that you do see that a bunch of the pushback to the expansion of NSA surveillance came internally from the NSA, uh, and that their arm was in some senses twisted to expand it. But the uh, fact yeah, that those are high-level executive also, there's positions... there's a lot of people who, I mean, are you talking about people like Thomas Drake? That's right. But yeah, no, they, have, they did knuckle under. I have a under. ton of respect for, I mean, I have a ton of respect for all of them, and the whole Thin Thread group. I mean, I think they're, they're heroes in all of this. But I also... I mean, we, those people are not protected, right? Like, the, if anything, we need stronger provisions for people like that and for that kind of internal, uh, you know, that, that kind of internal concern and, you know, whistleblowing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the problem is I think we can't, we can't count on, you know, who, who's, the, who's the Thomas Drake of the, of the FISA court? It's tricky. I mean, but, but so, I mean, the reason I've been thinking about this lately, honestly, is so there is this, I don't like the term, like, the, you know, we, we sort of have to call it the encryption debate. I think it's a little bit of the framing is, is not always my favorite thing, but, um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people in, in the tech world who would, you, you would expect to be very skeptical of the FBI's demands. And I think, and also, I mean, you know, we've seen this whole cycle with San Bernardino that that we've seen the FBI backing down on a lot of cases, and you would expect them to be sort of feeling good about this. But I think a lot of what they're saying is, look, this issue is still a real one, right? They're still finding phones and wanting to get into phones, and they can't get in, right? That's that's not going to stop happening. No, it, it will be and, more and more true. Yeah, and, and so, okay, now they've backed down from doing it publicly, but that just means they're going to push harder privately, and what we don't have is sort of a resolution that will actually push us towards some sort of stable ground. And and so they, they, they're they feeling more nervous based on this. And you say, you know, we need some kind of way of managing this, right? We can't just keep telling them, well, there's nothing we can do. But the problem, I mean, I think part, this is part of the thing is it's framed as the encryption debate, right? Um, and, you know, when people talk about it, when the FBI talks about it, they're always talking about, well, okay, encryption is the problem. But another way to look at it is the courts are the problem. The problem is that people don't trust that a warrant requirement is actually going to mean 
a duly approved and like vetted warrant that is submitted in open court, right? Because the courts are broken because of FISA, right? That, that I think is the weird missing piece because we've effectively, in order to justify mass surveillance and keep it secret, we've created this sort of shoddy simulacrum of what is normally this incredibly important uh, function of our government. And if you can't trust the courts to be an oversight mechanism, then you can't, then, then a warrant doesn't mean anything. You know, if, if you don't trust that there's a court behind it, then it's very difficult to say, oh, okay, you know what? I am actually, we're going to make this separate duplicate key and you're going to keep it. And only when the court says, absolutely, you can have it, then, then we'll let that in. But we'll give you this, we'll give you this master key and we'll trust you with it, right? I think that would, they've made it impossible. It's not an encryption problem. It's a, it's a due process problem. That's right. I mean, the, we're, what we're missing is... Uh, well, we have a constitution that doesn't understand databases, and so it certainly doesn't understand this idea that there's a bucket of data and there's an index to that data, and maybe those two things might be different. We also have a constitution that doesn't understand terrorism because it falls in the middle between law enforcement and and war. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Like there was there was terrorism in the in the 18th century too. There was, but we still, and are you talking about sort of going against the Barbary pirates and things like that? Yeah, I mean, piracy, like, I think, I mean, I, I do think, you know, maybe we're headed to a place where, like, the state is no longer really the organizing principle of how, like, armed force works, which I think is a little bit of a challenge because the Constitution is, it's the Constitution of a of the state of America. Uh, and so I think that's tricky, but I do think I'm a little bit skeptical of the claim that there's this band of non-state actors who want to do bad things. And that's completely unlike anything we've faced in our history. I mean, I think, you, you know, I, you might as well, like, I think it's true that something like the hydrogen bomb, you might say, well, okay, we have nothing in the constitution that, that's anything like this. Like, how do we, manage a power of this magnitude sure um but i mean it's also you know it's it's a stretchy constitution it can it can handle a lot <laughs> well, that's actually that's actually my point is that i think yeah. that um it's not so much that the it's not so much that the idea of this isn't isn't comprehended it's just that what we don't have is a bedrock foundation on which to base the rules. I think it, it all comes down to you've got different populations of people and what are their rights to behave badly. Uh, so, yeah. we, so we believe that terrorists certainly are not allowed to behave badly and, are, and uh, the closer they are, the more strongly we believe that. Uh, so, okay, police will behave badly. Uh, to what extent are they allowed latitude in warrants or in surveillance, uh, you know, for the, quote, greater good, unquote. Um, yeah. And then the interesting side to all this uh, is that if you look at online anonymity or anonymity in general, um, or any sort of dragnet surveillance, whether you're talking about license plate readers at the boundaries of neighborhoods or... Uh, all of the toll readers that we've seen on the interstates where uh, it's clear that, for instance, in Orlando, that 
Uh, many of the big intersections in the city are reading your toll transponder, even though they're not charging you a toll. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there's lots of questions about that data, and we found lots of it poorly protected on different websites. But the question is, uh, how do we articulate the right of citizens to behave badly? Because if you look at the Fourth Amendment, if you look at online an anonymity, fundamentally what people are asking for is the right to behave badly, the right to search about and, and read about things that they may or may not be interested in actually doing without incurring consequences uh, you know, from government actors. And so we need, it sure would be nice if we had an articulation of that privacy that we could head back to. Um, but, uh, you know, until then, the, the old maxim of don't do anything you wouldn't want to see printed out and nailed to your door, I think. <laughs> well, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's a bleak thought, right? I think it's, I, it's, it's a little depressing for me to, to think of living the rest of my life never doing anything I wouldn't want on the front page. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's sustainable. People politics, are people. Right? <laughs> uh, so, so... You know, the, the people sort of at the forefront of this today are, are WhatsApp, right? Where they've got their very public launch of the fact that uh, as soon as everyone upgrades, uh, you know, I, I think anyone who's in the United States m may not realize the extent to which the rest of the world really runs on WhatsApp as a texting oh, platform. Yeah. Uh, and so they've got their huge launch, um, but they're immediately coming into conflict with government actors. So, uh, you know, after Brazil, who's going to, who, who do you think they'll have trouble with next? Yeah, it's tricky to say. I mean, I think uh, I always well, I don't. I always hear about Singapore in this context. Actually, this was what they said in uh, when I was talking to people in the Apple case. I think there was a brief question when when they said, "Okay, you know, if Apple is forced to unlock the phone, will this mean uh, you know then China will turn around and ask?" And I talked to China people about it, and they said, "Well, no, China doesn't care. If China wants something, they're just going to ask for it. They don't." They're not waiting for permission from the U.S. But right. I think countries like Singapore, you know, Singapore has a very surveillance-friendly culture. I think they, um, they're just used to it. The idea that that uh, you know the state would have access to more information about about a person, and so uh, all the police have sort of always on body cameras. Uh, and it's just a lot of things about the way the society is structured that's more uh, amenable to things like that. Um, and so I often wonder, I mean, I think they're, they haven't been that visible in the fight so far, but I wonder if we will see something like that uh, as, as these programs spread and as, as they're, you know, running up against local law enforcement. Well, excellent. Thanks very much for talking about us. Uh, you know, this, this surface area of this encryption and privacy and the you know, oh, government yeah. interacting with citizens, it doesn't look like it's going to be settled anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well thanks for having me. Thanks very much. And uh, we will talk to you again soon as, as new stories develop. Mm -hmm. Have a good one. You too. If you have questions for Josh or any of our guests, feel free to leave a comment on the latest episode at blog.ipvanish.com. On the next episode of Secure Sessions sponsored by IPVanish VPN, we have Hamid Khan, coordinator of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, discussing what citizens can do when governments go too far. Tune in for this can't-miss session. <laughs>